It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm very happy to be here with one of the communications professionals that I respect most in the country right now. Uh, she's a communications researcher and campaign advisor, Anat Shankar Asario. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, what a very lovely intro. Thank you so much. I'm flattered. Well, it's true. I think the last time we had you on the show, you were talking about your first season of your podcast, which was called Brave New Words. The second season is coming out and that is called Words to Win By. And it's about like how we win victories with good progressive messaging. Am I right about that? Can that happen? Uh, I know it sounds far-fetched, but um, it is the true life story of campaigns that we have won around the world. So it is not theoretical. It is actual victories. And it is a backstage pass in each of these campaigns to the messaging that was used and sometimes to the discussions, let's call them <laughs> discussions, about that messaging and why it was that folks decided to reframe things, perhaps reject a status quo approach, try something new. Sometimes we go into the research that was conducted. We give you a snapshot of the ads, the whole thing. Um, but yeah, campaigns that we won. That's really exciting that that happens. Um, we wind up talking a lot about the democratic messaging problem. Um, how do we change the narrative? As someone who actually does communications research, which is, I think, a, a, an area that like everybody thinks they understand, but nobody's actually devoted any time to, what do people mean when they talk about messaging, when they talk about narrative shift? Like, how does that equal a win? Yeah, it's a great question. So narrative shift in progressive landia has become quite sexy the last mm -hmm. few years. I don't know how deep into the nerd you want to go, but oh, with quite, it, but huh? I mean, quite always. But. <laughs> um, and with that, and obviously, this is my critique, these are my non-empirical opinions. <laughs> uh, and with that, I think it's become a little bit fashionable and a little bit, I will be quite pointed, sloppy to talk about how we need to quote unquote shift the narrative and how that is apart from messaging and that is some sort of higher order thing. And it is certainly the case that narrative is deeper, it's sort of the embedded assumptions that people have about quote unquote, the way the world works. It's the stuff that we believe to be true without even recognizing that we believe it. But in point of fact, the only lever that we have at our disposal to do this magic trick of quote unquote, shifting the narrative or altering common sense or what I like to call engaging in make-believe, how we make people believe, which is often, as you might guess, through stories, 
is by having a message that we repeat over and over. Because what we find is that messages that are more familiar to people, they do something that we call, uh, they create cognitive ease. Cognitive ease is that sense of your brain doing some work for you that you feel like you don't have to engage in. It's when somebody does the da 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 and your brain does the dot dot for you. And so a message that feels familiar to you is rated as being more convincing, even never mind the content of it. And so a really concrete example of this kind of thing would be, um, you know, probably the most iconic one that most of uh, most folks are going to be familiar with is the shift on marriage equality. So the rapidity of the quote unquote narrative shift around at a deep level, who gay folks are, who lesbian folks are, what makes a family, what constitutes love, and therefore what merits the sort of official sanction of state matrimony. In, in order to create that shift, a lot of things had to happen. And one of those was the move away from practical messaging like married filing jointly, hospital visitation rights, because most normal people do not think of their spouse as their joint filer toward messaging that said love is love and love makes a family. And it is through that repetition of a phrase like that, that we can begin to change this deeper sort of more invisible thing, which is the narrative. One other example I would offer more recently is the fight for 15. So not yes. only was the fight for 15 considered quote unquote audacious, not by me, but by sort of mainstream lefty uh, and certainly democratic groups in that it was not only making a demand for more than twice the existing federal minimum wage, as you know, it was wearing that demand as its brand. Yeah. And it was shifting the conversation around wages away from, again, a practical argument that we had been told is what we have to make. So we sound like the grownups in the room. And that practical argument sounds like we should pay people more so they can be customers in our store. We have a consumer driven economy and the way that you bolster the economy is by putting money in people's pockets so they can spend it toward an argument that said people who work for a living ought to earn a living. And toward right. an organizing model that showed people, mostly fast food workers, speaking up for themselves, not in service of, quote unquote, the economy, but for themselves. And that is a narrative shift around what are wages, what ought to be an expected return on work, and so on. This is why I just like listening to you because it all makes so much sense. But like, that's the narrative shift that we need on almost everything that we're talking about today. How do we shift from talking about systems? How do we shift from talking about you know the debt and deficit to talking about the impact of, of what's happening in people's daily lives? Like, how do we center workers in the labor conversation? How do we center families in the immigration conversation? You know, how do we get to talking about the people who are affected instead of some nameless, faceless border security conversation, which the right can slap all kinds of things onto it because they're not fighting an actual lived experience. They're they're fighting a, a, a phrase, a, a sort of meaningless, meaningless phrase. Are there examples from 
words to win by that we should be looking at specifically to help us get through the sort of messaging mess that we're in right now. And by messaging mess, I'm defining that as um, the other side is absolutely energized over things that are not happening. Whereas our side feels demoralized, even though substantive progress is being made. Like that is what I define as the messaging mess. So uh, do you have any words of wisdom or words to win by uh, to help us out of that? Yeah, so many. Um, it's hard to know where to start. Yep. <laughs> I think, so that episode that dropped, the first episode of the season, which dropped last week, was about winning in Wisconsin. And it was about taking Wisconsin, which, by the way, happens to be my home state. Um, mm-hmm. And the uh, one of the guests that we interview in the show, the show is a narrative format. So it's a series of guests. We take you through the story. We play ads. We play research, whatever. Um, is Ben Wickler, who is the chair of the Democratic Party. Oh, I love Ben. He has been a guest on this show regularly. And also my old high school classmate. No way! Yeah. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just reinforcing this idea that there's only five people in Wisconsin, which is not true. It's a fairly big state. Fairly big state. There's only five people in Madison. That's really the issue. Um, So that's not true. That was yes, no, we, we understand. Um, disinformation, right. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's what I want you to take away. From you me. knew it wasn't true when you said it. Ergo, disinformation. <laughs> you had me repeat it. There we go. See, we just didn't know. I mean, I'm pretty magical. <laughs> okay, tell me about Wisconsin. Wins. No, actually <laughs> providing you content and your answer. Um, so the first episode is really all about how you overcome right-wing race baiting. Yes, we need that. Which which just is variations on a theme from them, right? Right now, the magical name that they've given to that is, of course, critical race theory, which is a real thing. It is an important academic idea that is taught mostly in graduate school, and it's something incredibly important to scholarship and to legal research in particular. So it is a real thing. It does exist. It just doesn't exist in the made-up form they are talking about it. Um, the form in which they're talking about it really just means teaching our kids the truth, which, by the way, around 84% of voters strongly favor. Right. When they when they actually get into, like, what are you afraid of with critical race history? It really sounds to me like they're coming back with American history. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You've pretty much nailed it. So that episode is really all about popping the bubble, the fiction that we can somehow have race neutral language on the left and think that that's going to work because high politics isn't solitaire and people don't just hear from us unfortunately and in fact they hear much more from the other side as you know and so this idea that we get to decide by ourselves the terms of conversation and if we simply do not speak about things that a functional country would call human rights like right. the ability to go down the street and not get shot at by police or the ability after decades to feel like the country in which you have made your home and sort of contributed to the culture and to the community is in fact yours and you don't have to look over your shoulder constantly because your status is unclear. Those are human rights issues. And so what what the lesson teaches is that the use of a very particular messaging structure that we call the race class narrative, which I'm proud to have been part of originally researching and implementing, 
what it really teaches us is that the way that we deal with these questions, and I hate to use the word deal because it makes it sound a negative, is that we actually say what we're for, which is by the way, kind of the lesson of every single one of these episodes. Hmm. Say what you're for, say what you're for, say what you're for. And after you have said what you are for and called people up to that higher order value that most of us do indeed share across race, across place, across genders, across countries of origin, et cetera, accents, beliefs, we then second call out the opposition, not just for what they're doing, but ascribing motivation, which is a step we often miss in our messaging. Okay, so... so not only do we need to say we are in favor of this, this is the world that we want, this is the world that we're fighting to create, we need to say we are not in favor of what you are suggesting and we have to say we understand why you're suggesting it. Yeah, it's essentially narrating the dog whistle. And so what it sounds like in language, let's take an example around wages, but we could take an example around education or an example around immigration, whatever you want. You can pick. Let's do education because that seems to be like schools are the thing. Yeah. So we have an opening sentence, which again is a shared value that explicitly names race. So for example, no matter what we look like, where we come from or what our zip code, most of us want our kids to learn the truth of our history so they can reckon with the mistakes of our past, understand our present and create a better future. You say that most people are like, yeah, okay, cool cool, cool. There's like a healthy 15%, the intractable opposition that's like, mm-hmm. but for the most right. part, you've got most people being like, yeah, sounds good. Not objectionable. Then in the second sentence, that is where you call out the problem. And you say, but today, a handful of politicians, or if you're running, I don't know, in let's say Virginia, you say, <laughs> but today, my opponent, Glenn Youngkin, whomever the villain or villains are, but today a handful of politicians are trying to turn us against public schools and teachers, hoping we'll look the other way while they endanger our kids' lives by opposing masks and take funding away from our schools to hand kickbacks to their donors. They hope that by getting us to point our finger in the wrong direction, We won't notice that they want to get and hold power by censoring the lessons we all want our kids to learn. So you say not just what they're doing, but again, why? What is the underlying motivation? And that underlying motivation is always power grab, handing wealth back to people, taking it away from us. This is what allows people to draw the causal connection between the racial harm, the racial injustice, and the economic one. It's essentially a point your finger at the bad guy, not the brown guy kind of an argument. As long as you keep believing that Juan is taking your job, when in point of fact, Juan is sitting outside of Home Depot trying to make some day labor, you will not notice that Jeff Bezos took your job. Because by the way, Juan is not in charge of public policy. Right. Right. No, I mean, this is, this is everything right here. Like they, they are so good at, um, 
at tapping into people's more conspiratorial beliefs that there is a reason why they are held back in some way, that there was a life that they thought was going to be easier or better or more like their parents or whatever. And if they don't have it, they have to have someone to blame. The people who are actually doing that to them are the people to blame, the people who are creating the legislation that doesn't pay them a living wage, doesn't allow them to take care of their kids, et cetera, et cetera. But they can't, that's not a sustainable situation. So they have to, they have to create a scapegoat. And race has always been the best scapegoat in America since we founded. So I feel like we're watching them do it more explicitly now than we've ever seen it before. But this has been their playbook since the dawn of the republic. I, yeah, do you and feel, it's do you feel like Democrats get this? Like, do you feel like like everything you're saying makes so much sense to me? And I wish that I heard every single politician talk exactly the way you just did, but I don't. Do you feel like they're getting it? There are places where they're getting it. Um, certainly the race class narrative approach, which obviously I was not by any means alone in helping create and develop. It was co-created and rests very much upon the work of Ian Haney Lopez, who literally wrote the book Dog Whistle Politics, Heather McGee, who has since gone on to write Some of Us, which profiles a whole heck of a lot of this, um, folks at SEAU, folks at uh, our various pollsters, like Research Partner, et cetera, you know, lots and lots and lots of very smart folks behind this endeavor. As far as places that we've successfully implemented it, yeah, it was what we did in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those were the states that I concentrated in in 2020. It's where I spent a lot of my time last year. It's also been implemented with success um, in other countries. We've used versions of it, for example, in Australia, which is a place that I work a whole lot. Um, there are strains of it in the episode that came out today, um, although that's, a, that's its own kind of frame flip story about how an organization called Operation Libro, which basically had just come on the scene and with 10,000 Swiss francs and lots of social media savvy bested the Swiss People's Party, which is the ruling party that had, wow. you know, fed and bred and anti-immigrant discourse for decades, and that's what mm -hmm. it held them to power. So there are definitely folks taking this on and doing this. I would even argue in this last election, obviously what comes top of mind into the fore is what happened in Virginia. But what was not reported was that in school board races yes. in places like Iowa and it Kansas- yesterday and Minnesota and Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera, places that not coincidentally were using the honesty and education messaging guide, which is where lots of what I was talking about already sits. And it's a resource. It's on my website. It's on the We Make the Future website because we've been doing this research into how to talk about fully, fairly funded race forward public education. Um, People won. People won. They beat back bad initiatives. They won school board races. It was by no means, I'm not in la la land, a clean sweep. But in places where people understand that you cannot run away from whatever the media and the right have decided to make the topic of the day. And in fact, you can take that and say, yeah, you want to talk about this? You want to talk about the truth of our history? You want to talk about the fact that white kids are uncomfortable? How do you think it feels for black kids 
to see history books full of people hanging from trees that look like them. Do you think that's uncomfortable? Why have we never mentioned that that might not feel great for a little black kid? So thank you very much for let's finally talk about sort of what's making little kids uncomfortable. Right. So, I mean, that's an aside that's more just me spouting off and being very <laughs> It was an important aside. <laughs> um, so... I mean, that's a major, major lesson. I think the other major lesson, which you've already hinted at yourself, is that our opposition is not the opposition. It's actually cynicism. It's not that people don't think our ideas are right. It's that they don't think our ideas are possible. And so a lot of what we see is that we have to navigate a very thin bridge or thread a fine needle, whatever analogy you prefer, between being explicit and calling out the opposition for what they're doing. And again, why, 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 what the underlying motivation is, but not leaning so far into that and vitally not having that be the first sentence. Right. The first sentence has to be what you're in favor of, what you're, what what you, your vision, what you believe. All right. Okay. So everybody's got it. We all have the, we, we all have the playbook now. We all understand how it works. Um, if you believe that you will be engaging in conversations, uh, like this with the opposition or with the media or with the family around Thanksgiving, I would highly recommend, uh, words to win by. I just, I like anybody telling the good news stories that we can all learn from, like that is such crucial organ organizing work, even as it is communications work. So thank you, Anat Chenker Asario, for your expertise today. And and as always, please come back whenever you feel like it. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 